What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. The calendar is just full of new album releases, so we thought it was time we did another review roundup. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we'll review the latest from Mavis Staples, Teen, Santi Gold, and more. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and uh, later in the show, Jim, I've got a Desert Island jukebox pick. I'm not going to reveal who it is, but let me just put it this way. When Michael Jackson got up to the podium to receive all those Grammys in the mid-'80s for Thriller, this man whose record I'm going to play was one of two names, only two names, that he mentioned when he got up to receive those awards. This is like the car talk puzzler. (laughs) People are wondering at home. That'll be later in the show, but first we've got some music news. Greg, that's a little of Arcade Fire from uh, The Suburbs, released in 2010. They recorded that album in Soho in New York City on Crosby Street at a studio called The Magic Shop. A lot of artists love this place. Lou Reed, Nora Jones, David Bowie. It will be closing soon after 28 years in just a couple of weeks. Yes, Jim. uh, The Magic Shop is just one of a string of major recording studios that we've seen closing up in the last decade or so. We wanted to take a closer look at the state of the recording studio today to see if this really is a trend, and if so, understand what's driving it. So to help answer these questions, we're joined by Larry Crane, owner of Portland's Jackpot Recording Studio since 1997. He's worked with artists like Elliot Smith, Slater Kinney, The Decembrists. He's also the editor and founder of Tape Op Magazine. It's like the Bible for both professional and home recorders. Larry, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. So, Larry, what we're hearing, the typical story we're hearing, is that the recording studios are becoming less popular. Uh, Business is going down because people can record digitally in their own bedroom using their laptop or even their cell phone. Is that what's really affecting the recording studio business model? I think that's a complete misdirection. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, There's been home recording ever since Les Paul was making records at his garage, right? And that's a few years back. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of misunderstandings about technology and music recording. I mean, partly what has kept places that are really good in business is having great sounding rooms to work in that are isolated. You know, like you don't have cars driving by or people stomping around upstairs or whatever could disrupt a recording session and rooms that sound aesthetically pleasing, you know. Look at the, the top 20, 40 albums that are being sold right now. And tell me how many of those are recorded completely at home by anybody. Right. I mean, are any of them? There's a lot of lazy journalists out there that tend to say this, that digital and access to the recording 
and multi-tracking possibilities in a laptop has killed a $400,000 facility. That's not true. And the records that are popular that people are buying, even if they were partially recorded at home, were probably mixed by a professional at a studio somewhere along the line. There's, there are professionals involved or their professional was hired to go help record that yeah. record in a, in a non-commercial studio setting, you know? So what really is the crux of the matter here? If it's not home recording per se, because it's been around for a long time, what has caused the shrinkage in the, in the number of studios over the last decade plus? I think there's several different factors and you have to look at this as a service industry. You have to look at this as a field that's affected by the movement forward of technology. And you have to look at this as a place that, that you make art. And those things intersect in different ways, don't they? You know, I think that the 70s and 80s, we saw studios built as investments. You've got to see a return and it's being run as a business. And that's quite a different thing than someone like myself who started this as a musician and an artist and wanted to help make art that run a very lean, smaller type studio that is being run out out of, I'd I'd have to say, a little bit more passion than investment at times. So what you're saying is I think that there's still money to be made in studio recording, but as a high-end sort of investment, as something that has a big financial return, that's the reason that some of these studios are closing. I think so in a lot of cases, you know, and if you look at the arc of it too, something like Sound City closing was, was someone going into retirement. And that's a very different scenario than Pro Tools killing a studio. Or in a, in a case of like the Hit Factory a number of years ago, you're looking at property values being far higher than what a recording studio can pay, you know, as far as a lease. That's a problem that's similar to rock clubs in many cities. Exactly, yeah. And, and that's, I mean, I kind of think we're seeing a general influx of people moving back into urban centers and higher density populations. I'm seeing that in Portland, mm. of course. With that, your commercial space leases are going to go up or a building. In the case of Hit Factory, a few years back, the property became worth so much that they could turn it into a luxury apartments and make a lot more money. I wonder if somebody like Dave Fridman has the right idea. You know, he's out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in eight feet of snow in upstate New York, and then he has bands like Tame Impala mm-hmm. and the Flaming Lips come to you. That's partially the answer to your earlier question is, is what's the future of recordings and studios? And partly it's selling a niche and selling um, a person and not the equipment. If you look in the past, you look in the 70s and 80s, which you could sort of consider like the heyday of actually making money in a studio. You had control because you had a two-inch tape deck and you had a console. You kind of had a lockdown on the business in that region possibly, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you and five other people in Portland had two-inch tape decks and that was it. So you had like a lockdown because of technology and people had to use your facilities if they wanted certain things. Now it's like that doesn't exist. And someone like Dave Fridman is a fantastic example of they will come to him because of what he does and what he offers. You don't book time with Dave Fridman and say – Oh, do you have Pro Tools? You know, who cares what he's using? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he makes yeah. amazing records. I don't care. Right. You know, and this and the same with Albini in, in Chicago and the there's a lot of people like that that operate more from their skill sets and what they bring to it. But you know, put aside the big high end studios like the Magic Shop, uh, where a lot of the business was from major labels. What about the small mom and pop studios? You know, those places where unsigned bands can go for, you know, 14 hours to record mm-hmm. demos or do a whole DIY album yeah. in one day. It seems like that's the side of the business that's disappearing because now you can just do that sort of a project digitally in your practice space. Sure. A- absolutely. Yeah. I used to do demo stuff all day and night. 
mm-hmm. know, so people could get a gig at Satyricon down the hill, you know? So that bottom end $200 a day recording session, that might be a tough market to be in. But one of the things I always put out there in tape op is like, find the person that wants to record you, you know, don't find someone that has the equipment or the technology, but find someone who's going to help you make a better recording. And still like at a, at a really low budget level, there's people out there with funky home setups or practice spaces that make great recordings to help people at that level. So there still is a business in that world. You know, it's not completely gone. How would one go about finding that person? You know, beginning artist doesn't have a lot mm-hmm. of connections. How would you advise a new band, new artist, hey, I want to get a little bit higher quality recording than I can get with this software I have in my computer? I think it's, you know, being part of a local scene. And, you know, every city of any size has a club scene and bands playing all the time and bands playing parties, the party house kind of circuit that we see these days and you know meeting people and finding out hey your record sounds kind of cool who did that or your your mp3s that are online sound kind of cool did you guys do that and that's exactly how my business began in my home studio 20 years ago there was just word of mouth like working with elliot smith was because we were hanging out at the same clubs and and i knew his girlfriend so for the 22 year old aspiring engineer who wants to be in the recording business what do you tell them i mean you're opening a recording studio now would you advise them that that's a good idea you know what i advise people now and then what i would probably do if i was starting from complete scratch is to have either a real small space at home or a a tiny small rental cubicle somewhere that you can just kind of mix and edit and maybe do small overdubs in and then to look for facilities run by gray-haired guys like me that are already there that can use freelancers, you know? I mean, there's rooms that need bodies in them making records. And, you know, I have a young guy that works for me as a, a house engineer who's busy all the time. And, and we have freelancers that come in. And to me, that's like take advantage of, of someone else who's crazy enough to spend a quarter million dollars <laughs> on recording equipment just because he loves the art of music, you know? <laughs> sure. And the other thing, too, is that's part of a community, isn't it? It's not just you on your own scrabbling, but it's like you meet other people, you get to try other equipment. If someone comes in here and they do a good job, we know that. And then we also even give them work, you know? Like the punk band, you're paying it forward. Absolutely, man. I really just want to see people making art. I come at this as a music fan. So for me to help people make things that are lasting and artistic i'm pretty proud to be here and be able to do some of that and to offer my place up as a service we've been talking with larry crane the owner of jackpot recording studio in portland and editor and founder of tape op magazine larry thanks for being our guest on sound opinions thank you so much i'm really honored to have been here and and i just love the show Lay down beside me Lay down and rest Your troubled mind Jesus Lay down beside me Lay down your worries All behind Where you went You are listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis and that is Mavis Staples with a song called Jesus Lay Down Beside Me from her new album Living on a High Note. That song, Jim, was written by one Nick Cave and what a song it is. (laughs) Oh yeah. It is one of the highlights of this new album. Mavis Staples, let's go back to the 50s as a teenager singing Uncloudy Day, one of the biggest gospel hits of that era. 
with her family, the Staples Singers. Obviously, the Staples Singers, big part of the folk and protest movement in the 60s, had a huge string of hits for Stax Records in Memphis in the 70s, including I'll Take You There and Respect Yourself. She reinvented herself as a solo artist in the 2000s after the death of her father, Pop Staples, in 2000, and has steadily been making records with people like Ry Cooter and Jeff Tweedy, and now M. Ward, the producer of her latest disc, Living on a High Note. The premise behind this disc is to get a bunch of contemporary songwriters to write songs for Mavis. We're talking about people like Ward himself, Valerie June, Ben Harper, Nico Case, Tunyard's Meryl Garbus, Bon Iver's Justin Vernon, Benjamin Booker, Nick Cave, and then have Mavis sing them. Here's a track from the record. It's called History Now. This is a Nico Case song as interpreted by Mavis Staples. And the new album is called Living on a High Note on Sound Opinions. Born into a fight, an inherited war. Born to children left over from wars before wars and the wars before. You do see a pattern, right? Yet somehow our love doesn't die. What do we do with this history now? Do we go in like a surgeon? We go in like a bomb How do we dismantle the sorrow and rage And pick up our scars off the ground Those girls and boys who died And lived for us so we could speak And love and be with you now History Now by Mavis Staples from her new album, Living on a High Note. A really interesting song, Greg, written by Nico Case. I think the song that Nico wrote and the song that Tunyard's Meryl Garbus wrote, Action, those are the two that I think really bring Mavis full circle. Singing modern protest songs clearly informed by the Black Lives Matter movement. I think M. Ward also does a nice job in writing that MLK song that ends the record. Some of the other material, you know, hit and miss. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it before you get to say it as Mavis Staples' Mm. official biographer. This woman is a national treasure. Later in the show, we're going to review Bonnie Raitt. You know, in the 90s, Bonnie had that sort of, you know, canonization, rediscovery by an audience after decades of making music and comes home with like a small truck full of Grammys. Mavis deserves that. This woman has done so much for American protest music, soul music, gospel music. You know, she's a giant, and her voice is still powerful. The emotions that come through are still really strong. I like this record a lot more than the two records she did with Jeff Tweedy, which weren't bad. They just weren't exciting. This is a more upbeat, more inspiring record. It's still not, 
the end career masterpiece I wish she had made. I think that might be actually that Live at the Hideout record from a few years ago. Still, this is absolutely a buy it record. Well, Jim, I beg to differ on the uh, career masterpiece as a solo act. I think she already made that record. We'll never turn back. That's an amazing record. If you're going to go for one Mavis solo record, that's the one, the one she recorded with Ry Cooter. This one's pretty good. It's not as good as that one, but it's a darn good record in terms of the way she takes even a seemingly slighter material and makes it her own. I'm thinking of a song like that Justin Vernon song, Dedicated. I can't imagine where his head was at when he wrote that. He certainly wasn't writing about Mavis's life per se. It's sort of a generic love song in many ways. But Mavis turns it around, and if you read between the lines, she's really singing this song to her sister, Yvonne, who is suffering from dementia and is no longer able to tour with Mavis. It's Mavis separating from her sister, basically saying, we can't go on together the way we used to, but we will forever remain bonded by our past. And it's a beautiful song, and you can almost feel Mavis choking up as she sings the song. Similarly with that cave song, an amazing song, Jesus Lay Down Beside Me. I mean, here's Mavis comforting Jesus in the song. Right, 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 and right. it's her way of saying, well, this, you know, Jesus has comforted me all my life. I'm finally getting an opportunity to, to give a little payback Well, here. and I just love the idea of the stylistic chasm between Nick Cave and Mavis Staples, right? It is very much like, you know, right. between Trent Reznor and Johnny Cash on that American Recordings project that the Rick Rubin did. Absolutely. And, and she's an incredibly generous spirit as well. That song, History Now, that you mentioned, which I think is one of the album highlights, the way she brings her backing vocalist, Donnie Gerard, into the mm. mix and turns it into a duet. And the way those two voices blend, I mean, it really chokes you up when you hear the sound of those two voices. So, you know, giving some time on her own record to one of her backing singers and saying, you're an important part of my sound, my career, too. I want to give you a little bit of this spotlight. So I think it's a very generous career record for Mavis. It is not a masterpiece, but it's a very good record. I think Mavis is doing some of the best work of her career in her mid-70s, and I think this is a buy it for me. Yes, a double buy it for Living on a High Note by Mavis Staples. After the break, we'll be back with more reviews, and then Greg will take a trip to the desert island. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Down the road we walked, down the road we talked. I remember when I made war with you, I made peace with you. That's what makes you my friend. And if it's us against the world, well, I would bet on us. But if you go yours And I go mine All bets are off This is dedicated This one's dedicated to you This one's because we made it This one's because we made it Can't get enough of my love. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We're catching up on a bunch of record reviews, a lot of new releases in the last few weeks. We're getting to some of the highlights, including this record. You're hearing a track called Can't Get Enough of Myself from Santi Gold, her new album, 99 Cents. Santi Gold, a.k.a. Santi White, also known as Santo Gold. Her first record came out under the name Santo Gold in 2008. It was a beautiful piece of work, a combination of reggae and new wave that really established Santi White as an artist in her own right. Now, prior to that, she had uh, been very well regarded as a songwriter, came out of Philly, uh, was writing songs for various artists, including another Philly soul singer named Reese. And if you're looking for a buried gem from the early 2000s, I would highly, highly seek out that record. That's R-E-S. She also went on to form a ska-punk new wave band named Stift, but it I think it was when she established her own career under that name, Santo Gold, in 2008, that she really emerged with her own voice. There was a follow-up record as Santi Gold in 2012, Master of My Make Believe, and now we have the third album of her career, 99 Cents, in which she's working with members of TV on the radio, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, Vampire Weekend, as well as pop songwriters like Kathy Dennis and Patrick Berger. Here's a track from it. It's called Banshee from Santi Gold, the 99 Cents album on Sound Opinions.
That is Banshee from Santi Gold's 99 Cents album, the third record of her career. Greg, she said she called it 99 Cents because that's what she thinks it's worth. I'll disagree with that. It's worth at least two or three times that, okay? That's what I'd pay. That having been said, it's not, not her finest moment. It's not a beginning-to-end great album. I think she is at her best when she is giving us singles. She's stylistically often all over the map, but the running thread, I think, is always that exuberance of the ska punk of her early career. The problem here is the middle of this album sort of bogs down, but there are, you know, three or four wonderful songs with this exuberant, high-energy dance pop punk ska mix, you know, but because it isn't beginning and end great, it's a try-it record for me. She's an interesting artist, Jim. I've always loved her uh, ability to put smart lyrics inside very catchy exteriors. So you're getting sort of a a double-edged sword every time you you listen to one of her songs. And this album works best when she does that. She's taking a big chance, I think, with some of her audience and working with some of these more pop-oriented songwriters and producers like Kathy Dennis and Patrick Berger. Uh, But those are the songs that work the best. That song, Banshee, that we played, I I, I love that track. It's a Kathy Dennis track. But it's also singing about the whole idea of uh, drug addiction. You know, let me play with fire tonight, you know, is the chorus. And you're thinking this this big celebratory song. But it's really saying, you know, watch out what you ask for here. Um, She's really talking about this tension between art and commerce. And it's not necessarily a new subject. But the way she addresses it is, is, you know, basically watch out. Your 15 minutes will be over soon. Be careful how you treat others during the course of those 15 minutes. You well, know? But, but it's that cautionary coupled, tale. It's that coupled with this sort of Kanye West braggadocio, but that's funny. I do love the way she combines the up-tempo, danceable stuff with these kind of darker undercurrent lyrics. But you're right, the... Uh, the more arty stuff, you know, she has this. She loves to, you know, work with people uh, in TV on the radio and Vampire Weekend. But some of that stuff is less successful. I feel like I want to edit this album down to, like, the six best tracks because yeah. I think they would be yeah. tremendous. So as a result, it's... Uh, for the first time, I've sort of been a little let down by a Santi Gold record. I think the first two are terrific, but this third one, it's a try-it record for me. That is a little bit of the title track from the third album by a band called Teen. Love Yes, name of the song, name of the album. Teen is a band based in Brooklyn, Greg, with three sisters, Teeny, Catherine, and Lizzie Lieberson, and uh, a woman named Bashra Al-Sadi on bass. They have been building their buzz in the underground for some time, but the roots go way back. 2010, Teeny Lieberson starts this band as a bedroom home recording project, eventually brings in her sisters, rounds out to a full group. A really interesting combination of styles here. Fascinated with the early 90s shoegazer movement, but also loving D'Angelo and Erica Badu. Then in the background is the way these Lieberson women were raised. Their father, Peter, who died in 2011, is a really famous classical composer who was very much inspired by Buddhism. So there's a lot of ingredients in the mix. They grew up in part in rural Nova Scotia, where there was nothing to do but make music. This album is the one that seems to be introducing them to their widest audience yet. 
Let's play a track from it. We'll come back and we'll give our opinions. This is a song called All About Us by Teen from Love Yes on Sound Opinions. That's all about us from the third teen album, Love Yes. Jim, uh, I've liked this band from the first album in terms of what they were attempting to do, but I think the execution left something lacking. I think I, I love the art pop sensibility here, but I thought they had an editing issue. They're getting better at writing these great pop songs out of yeah. these quirks on this record. It's the it's their best one yet in terms of crafting these quirks into really tight pop songs. The keyboardist, Lizzie Lieberson, is the secret weapon here. She finds different voicings for every one of these songs with her array of keyboards. And Teeny's voice is a wondrous thing as well. She can do the the punk rock thing, the, the heavy rhythmic rapping thing, and she can also do like her inner Enya, channel that on, a, on a, at yeah. least one of these ballads. But I still see some editing issues. I still see some uh, problems with the way these songs are put together. There's great ideas here, but I don't understand you. Maybe you can explain this to me. Why do four of the tracks end with these sax or trumpet solos that seem to just come out of nowhere. You, I mean, once, maybe, What's maybe once, maybe twice, but four times? It's, a, it's like a running theme to the point where it becomes uh, really annoying on this record. You're the guy who claims to love the funk. It exists because it's a dance song. Well, but it's not, the, the funk isn't there. The funk fades and fades and uh, fades is what I'm right. saying. You know, so in some, sometimes I think when they're trying to break away from pop cliche, they overdo it a bit. But this, by far, for me, is their most pleasurable album, beginning to end. I think this is a group with an incredible amount of promise. I'm really looking forward to their next record. This is their best one yet. I'm still not going to give it a full-on buy it, though. It's a try it for me. Man, you're just being stingy. I, I, I don't understand. I, I love, you know, you said Enya. I will say 
Sinead O'Connor in terms of the balladry. The the ambition of somehow making a coherent and fun mix of Sinead O'Connor, funk like Erica Badu and D'Angelo or Soul, and Sonic Boom, My Bloody Valentine's Shoegaze, right? Additionally, there's a heavy concept thing here. You know, you're looking for meaning in the horns. Maybe that is the argument with the men that keeps rearing its head after the women have their say. They are talking about love. There is nothing more boring in the history of pop music than yet another love song, unless it has something new to say. I think this joins Savage's second album in terms of giving us a really interesting new perspective on the sloppiness, the trouble that is love, and yet at the end of the day, it's ultimately idealistic and optimistic, and there's a longing for that sort of connection. I love this record, so I'll buy two copies to make up for your mere try it. Looks like we've been butting heads again, baby. Lately seems like I don't we ever do. Can't remember when things got so crazy. All I know is I don't know what to do. Great, continuing our early 2016 record review roundup. We're having a ball listening to all these records. That is a song called Unintended Consequence of Love from album number 20 by Bonnie Raitt, Dig In Deep, recently released on her own independent label, Red Wing Records. You know, Bonnie Raitt grew up in Burbank, California. Her father was a fairly famous uh, Broadway star, but she gravitated to very different sounds. She fell in love as a young woman, age 12, uh, with blues guitar, developed one of the most mean slide blues guitar styles, you know, just on the musical spectrum, and, you know, accordingly became a cult favorite with critics, critics darling, for many, many years, until her long overdue big breakthrough with that album, Nick of Time, working with producer Don Was in the early 90s. Nick of Time, Luck of the Draw, bunch of hit singles, something to talk about, I Can't Make You Love Me, an armful of Grammys. I think she had a, you know, she has a separate room just for all the Grammys she won at that time and has been pretty consistent ever since. It has, however, been a tough couple of years for Bonnie Raitt. In a span of five years, she lost both of her parents, her brother, and her best friend. She came back in 2012, though, with all of this loss somehow energizing her. She was now the owner of her own independent label, recording herself 2012 that album slipstream and now it's time for album number 20 dig in deep she is once again her own producer this record uh you know she's known for covering other people's material and occasionally writing some of her own this has more new original material than we've heard from her in quite some time five of the tracks are are penned by bonnie herself the others include covers of uh, 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 artists as diverse as los lobos and in excess Let's play a song from the record, and we'll come back and we'll give our opinion. This is called The Coming Round is Going Through by Bonnie Raitt on Sound Opinions.
That is The Coming Round is Going Through from Bonnie Raitt's new album, Dig In Deep, a perfect song for an election year. Bonnie Raitt, this woman has participated in a number of uh, political and social activist activities over the decades. It is not surprising to hear her voice some strong opinions in that song. Without particularly naming names, you can sort of fill in the blanks about what's going on. Bonnie Raitt sounds re-energized, renewed. Uh, you know, it began with that Slipstream record in 2012. I happened to catch some of those tour dates. Uh, she and her band sounded amazing. That band is a key part of her well-being these days. She's been working with this band for 25 years, and you can mm. hear the interplay uh, between those musicians. What Bonnie has gotten down to as her own producer is capturing some of that feel in the studio. Her records still have a little bit of that California sheen to them, but she's not afraid to allow the grit to seep in. You can hear it in her voice in the coming round is com- going through, and you can hear it in that guitar tone. My gosh, let us all bow down to Bonnie Raitt's slide guitar tone. I mean, it is an amazing thing. You can recognize that tone within three seconds. That is a big part of this record. And she, of course, is justifiably praised as a blues rocker. But the other aspect of this record, Jim, is that she is a great singer, particularly these ballads. I think Bonnie Raitt, similarly to Mavis Staples, is enjoying a late career renaissance where she's making some of the best music of her life. Digging Deep is a buy it record for me. I wish I was as enthusiastic as you, uh, Greg. It's a try it record for me. By no means is this a bad record, and at its best, when Bonnie is at her most up-tempo. Same thing I said about Santi Gold, right? When she is really kind of firing on all four cylinders, uh, I like that best. The slower balladry, she's not convincing me, although it is a good voice. I'm not being surprised by Bonnie Raitt. She's a heritage artist, been around a very long time, and you're right. You know, she is now the age that those great blues men were when she fell in love with them when she was 12. But uh, the material's not quite there. I'd love to see her take an approach like Mavis Staples did, play some Jack White songs, okay, and see what that would sound like. But, you know, not a bad record, not a great record. Try it. So that's a try it from me, but a very enthusiastic buy it from Greg. We've told you what we think, but now we want to hear your opinions. Call us at 888 888- 859-1800 and share what you think about any of these new releases. We'll be back with our final record review and a Desert Island jukebox pick by Greg in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Can I feel you? Are you mythological? 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song called Feel You, which leads off the fourth studio album by the artist Julia Holter, Have You in My Wilderness. It's on Domino Records, that really well-respected indie label out of the UK. Greg, this is a fascinating artist. What a backstory. Multi-instrumentalist composer based in Los Angeles. Her father was a folk guitarist who played with Pete Seeger for a time. She's fascinated by folk music, but also electronic experimental music. We're talking like Stockhausen and John Cage, Found Sound. In the early days of her career, she did strange projects as diverse as interpreting a Burmese traditional folk song and then reinterpreting John Cage in a folk pop sort of indie underground weird set. There are many hyphens to Julia Holter's work. The album in front of us, Have You in My Wilderness, is being considered her most accessible. But what does that mean from a woman who once made a musical version of a Los Angeles church club cookbook from the 1920s? I'm intrigued. you got to be intrigued just by that description. Let's play a song. We'll come back and we'll give our review. This is called Sea Calls Me Home by Julia Holter on Sound Opinions. That is Sea Calls Me Home from Julia Holter's new record, Have You In My Wilderness. Jim, uh, when I first heard this song months ago, I could not get it out of my head. I mean, that chorus, I can't swim, it's lucidity, so clear. I was singing that for days after I heard it for the first time. The melody line is just one of those earworms that you cannot shake. And then the whistling on top of that with the melody line, it's it's just a wonderful 
pop song. And this whole notion, I think you gave people a rather daunting history. Her resume is pretty impressive. Also part of her past is that when she was an unknown artist, she did a, a cover of a Madonna song with Ariel Pink, Everybody. So she's got this playfulness to her that I think is very underrated, and it's really starting to emerge on these last two albums, particularly this one. I know that she's credited her producer, this fellow named Cole, a.k.a. Marsden Grief Neal, as being a big part of that, you know, sort of bringing out some of the drama in her songs. But I also think she's gone back to a a, a simpler style on this record in terms of the songwriting. And she said, yes, some of these songs... Are, were written years ago when I wanted to go out on my own uh, and, and just play solo and, and do things on the piano without relying on any loops. I, I, I intentionally wrote some simpler material that could be played on the road in that way, and she adapted those arrangements for this particular record. And I think it contributes to the fact that some people are saying, oh, it's this big pop move. Well, in fact, this is just part of her artistic sensibility. And the amazing thing about Julia Holter is I think it is going to continue unfolding over the years. We're going to see really just how great she is as a musician and songwriter. For me, this is a terrific record, a buy it record all the way. I agree with your enthusiastic buy it, Greg, and I will double it. This record is a pure joy. Maybe I was laying it on a bit heavy, okay, uh, in, the, in the intro. Uh, I'm fascinated that she has these esoteric way far underground uh, interests in the in the world. You know, not, not, not the indie rock underground, but in that really daunting classical composition underground. I think she's an artist that needs to be mentioned in the same breath as someone like Bjork in terms of taking very high-concept musical ideas that, that, that could be off-putting but somehow pairing them with pop. I think Bjork came from pop and brings the high-end uh, avant-gardeism. Julia Holter comes from the avant-garde and also has this love of song. You know, let me compare her to another artist. I had serious trouble with harpist Joanna Newsom's last album. I think it was trying for a similar blend of high and low brow. To me, it was just joyless, pretentious, plodding. Those are words that you can't use with Julia Holter. So a very enthusiastic double buy it for her new album. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island, pops a quarter in the jukebox, and plays you a song we can't live without. Greg, you were hinting at something good earlier. You better deliver. (laughs) I plan to, Jim. I'm very excited to uh, talk about Mr. Excitement, otherwise known as Jackie Wilson. They used to call him, and I thought this was so condescending. When he when he would come up, people would say, "Oh, he's the Black Elvis." And and people asked Elvis Presley about that. He goes, "I guess that makes me the White Jackie Wilson." You know, because he realized what an amazing artist Jackie Wilson was in his own right. You really couldn't compare him to anyone. In fact, people like Michael Jackson, who I mentioned at the top, wouldn't be who they were if they hadn't watched loads of video of the young Jackie Wilson performing, because this guy had it all. The voice, 
multi-octave range, operatic range, the style. He always dressed incredibly well on stage. And then the dance moves. I mean, James Brown would watch Jackie Wilson perform to, to borrow some of his moves. And if you look at those Jackie Wilson video from the, uh, the 50s, you can see a lot of the influence that he had on, on subsequent generations of performers. Now, he had a, a, an amazing run in the 50s with some really big hits, including Lonely Teardrops and Reet Petit. But then had a kind of a fallow period in the 60s where he's tr- struggling to find his voice. He reconnected with what made him great when he started working with a Chicago producer named Carl Davis. Carl Davis was importing the Motown rhythm section on weekends to come down to Chicago. And, and Carl Davis had a successful run with uh, Chicago artists like Major Lance, Billy Butler, Walter Jackson, but did some of his best work of all time with Jackie Wilson. So here's the track that I think is one of the finest moments in music history, let alone Jackie Wilson's career. And there have been times, Jim, I think there was a, probably a two-year period in my life where I thought the most perfect track in the world was this particular track. And I'm talking about Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher. Mm. Uh, there was a line in this song where it, it, it sort of reaches these ecstatic heights. You know, you talk about the sacred and the profane. Sex and God are not that far removed from each other. And finding God in the arms of a woman and also being able to go on because of that love. The whole idea is, with your love and arms around me, I can get up and face the world. Listen to the sound of his voice when he says those words. I mean, it really makes you believe in the power of this thing. Whatever it is, we can't explain it, the mystery of it. And what an arrangement by Carl Davis. So here's Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher from Jackie Wilson on Sound Opinions. And face the world 
Your love keeps lifting me higher. Greg Cott waxing rhapsodic about the Jackie Wilson classic. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have a show we're calling Rock Around the Clock. It's songs about time. As always, we have some thank yous to say. Greg, Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, Jim and Greg. This is Luther calling from Chicago. I want to thank you for um, acknowledging the passing of Maurice White a couple of weeks ago. Maurice White, Nerf, Wind & Fire, to me, were the natural evolution of the civil rights music that you played last week with songs like Keep Your Head to the Sky and On Your Face and many others. They just had a positive vibe to them, and along with all the dance and ballads they played, they always had a positive message. So I appreciate you... Um, acknowledging them, and I hope sometime in the future maybe you can do a more in-depth feature about them with some of the remaining members. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, my name is Natalie Davis. I'm calling from Nashville, Tennessee. And I am one of those elusive figures, a female Rush fan. I have been a female Rush fan since I was in college, and I will be a female Rush fan until I die. I love those guys. I'm grateful for their music and for the enlightenment and that they still keep trucking. This is KS from Chicago. I've been listening to you forever. This Rush interview just about made me drive my car into a tree. I swear to God, with you, I could do this for another six hours. I'm a girl. I'm not mythical. I've loved Rush my entire life. I remember being a little kid, and my brother and sister were going to see them, and that was back in the days when you'd, like, paint giant sheets instead of, like, holding up little posters. And we worked on this huge sheet with the 2112 on it for, like, a week. It was awesome. I've grown up with Rush my whole life, and you know what? I don't even think any of my boyfriends have ever said, like, oh, you're the first chick I've ever met that listens to Rush. I think we're out there. Maybe we're just closeted? I don't know. Anyway, rock on. Hi, my name is Francis, and I'm nine years old. I listened to your interview with Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson. My mom loves Rush, and she plays a lot of their songs for me. I also watched the Rush movie. Beyond the Lightest Stage, the female Rush fans really do exist. Hi there, this is Dan from Macomb, Illinois. I was so surprised when I looked through my list of podcasts and saw that Sound Opinions had a rush. I just enjoyed listening to it so much. That band, 
has been pretty much solely responsible for my identity as a musician, as a person. I can just picture myself as a high school kid 20 years ago, standing in front of my stereo with my tape deck, trying to learn every riff I could of Alex's amazing shredding and just what joy that brought to me. My favorite Rush memory, we were uh, seeing them in St. Louis this past summer. My brother and I seen them together for probably the 12th, 13th time. And uh, during the song Jacob's Ladder, about halfway through, I looked over at my younger brother and uh, noticed that we were both in tears. We just had these tears streaming down our face. It was, I'm getting choked up even just thinking about it. It's just amazing. Thanks, guys. Messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.